It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. So today, climate concerns continue to rise and consumers are demanding organizations improve their sustainability efforts and footprint. And on this episode of The Big Rethink, Lee Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Resurity Inc., is going to talk to us about the current state of clean energy initiatives, the work his company does in the space, and the future of clean energy, and what this means for business. Lee, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me here. Excited to be here. So, Lee, let's start on a broader topic. I want to get into what Resurity is all about and and the organization and all of that. But let's start with sort of a very high level. So I think as we look at it, you know, consumers today are looking for a lot more transparency from companies when it comes to the topic of sustainability. And so I know, you know, one of the questions that I have is, you know, how has sort of ESG and corporate social uh, sustainability sort of evolved in the recent years to get this point where every business now sort of has this responsibility to drive sustainability efforts forward. And and maybe for those of you that are listening to this and aren't completely familiar with the topic, maybe we start with, why don't you explain what ESG is and then sort of follow on with sort of the, the, the question in regards to responsibility? Sure, happy to. And so, you know, Big picture, ESG stands for Environment, Social, and Governance, and essentially it is, uh, you know, good things in the world, Uh, better management of governments and companies, improved access to education, social equality, environmental protection. Uh, I think the, you know, in our industry in renewable energy, we almost exclusively focus on the E part of ESG from, from the environmental impact. And I think that, you know, you've broadly seen this dramatic increase in demand from various stakeholders uh, of businesses, customers, employees, and investors alike to you know, believe that they're voting with their time and their dollars, either as consumers or investors, in something that they are you know, proud of, of standing behind. And so that shift towards uh, ESG has been building and has sort of reached a, a, a pinnacle recently, but as you point out, there's also been sort of a shift of, of that increased sort of trend, call for trans, transparency and scrutiny uh, around it. And, you know, we live in the weeds of a, of a specific element of, of ESG as it relates to renewable energy and how folks procure that. And we can get into that in detail. But I think, you know, bigger picture, you know, ESG has been the cover of the, you know, Economist recently. I think the title was ESG, Three Little Words That Won't Save the Planet. Uh, it's been the focus of a you know recent Elon Musk tweet where he called ESG the devil. Uh, you know I think those were all in the last few months, and so there's this huge claim or huge clamoring for uh, sort of. Uh, improvement in, in ESG around that transparency. And, and I think that that's, that's a key sort of overarching theme, whether you're in renewable energy or, or totally unrelated from it. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you touched on transparency and, and you know, sort of the the recent, you know, increase in this. But I, that's actually one of my questions is wh- why? Why are we seeing so much news and conversation specifically about the transparency and accuracy 
in sustainability reporting? So I think it's generally been building over time, but but recently sort of reached reached a, a peak uh, of this demand, not for just, you know, tell me that you're doing good things as a business, but but prove it. Uh, and I think some of that scrutiny is is healthy. I mean, it's there's been a lot of articles recently, for example, that the concept, like the phrasing of carbon footprint, was actually invented by an oil company, BP, you know, in the early 2000s as part of a marketing campaign. Uh, and so, you know, this view that differentiating between uh, real, sincere, and impactful activities versus uh, a marketing campaign that suggests you're doing that whether or not you actually are. Separating between those two such that, uh, again, sort of, you know, employees, customers, and and investors are driving their uh, time and dollars towards those real sincere high impact and, and away from what often gets the term, you know, greenwashing, at least in our industry, greenwashing, where it's sort of ESG and name only. And I think that's where a lot of the scrutiny has come from. It's certainly where I think a lot of the blowback on ESG, which we as a company and I as an individual think is an incredibly important uh, evolution of sort of where, uh, you know, corporate activities are going. But I think it's healthy to say, well, well, how much of this is spin versus real impact? And it's and that that's that's driving, uh, driving that that interest overall uh, and, you know, can get into the specifics of sort of the renewable realm if that's of interest. But I think that's outside of renewable energy. I think that's what we're seeing and, and why it's the focus of Elon Musk tweets and, and you know, cover stories of, of The Economist. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because it is definitely a marketing term and there's a lot of folks that are utilizing it. And I think it's also, you know, we live in a time where, if we're going to make a claim, there's someone that will call you out on it. And I don't know that that's a bad thing per se, um, but I definitely think that it's something that people need to be aware of when they're when they're talking about them being a sustainable organization or some of the things that they're doing around sustainability, being able to back that up because someone will call them out on it. But in that context, you know, how are you seeing um, sort of how is consumer demand changing how companies operate in terms of ESG? And and what do you see those impacts being on B2B companies? So from a consumer perspective, you know, you see it in almost any packaging, grocery store, toy store, otherwise, you know, made with renewable energy, made with clean energy. Uh, and, and that is something that is demanding uh, at at worst, sort of a, a tiebreaker. You know, when consumers are making uh, making decisions, at best, uh, really defending a, a premium for for those products. And so you see consumers asking for that, and that flows through the value chain. And so when you see uh, retailers, whether it's Walmart, Amazon, otherwise, they're pressuring their suppliers uh, to, to, you know, to, to drive towards levels of uh, sustainability that they can then pass that through and demonstrate that not only are we, you know, greening our own practices, for example, but we are, you know, amplifying our impact by going uh, upstream in the supply chain. It gets gets to be more B two B. So I think it uh, from the consumer side, and I think we can't. You know, if we think about you know employees of, of companies as well as effectively consumers choosing where to spend their time uh, versus dollars, you see that uh, preference for uh, sustainability-driven companies, and particularly if that's 
highly defensible uh, and sort of reducing the, the risk that um, there's a, a real or, or perceived impact of sort of gr- you know, greenwashing relative to, to legitimate impact. That drives demand, uh, and that is something that corporations are therefore going after, both out of you know both altruistic and and self interest. Uh, that that's what their stakeholders want. Yeah, I think we've seen an evolution over time where you know from the consumer side, you know people if if someone brought out a green initiative, the reaction from a, a consumer would be. Oh, that's nice. You know, it's 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 nice that they're doing that. But I think we've progressed to the point where now it's a no, I'm specifically looking for those companies that are sustainable, who do have the appropriate green initiatives in place. And that's who I want to do business with. So it's not just the oh, that's nice. It's now people in what I've seen and what I've been reading are really searching for that. And I will give you an example. I was just watching a review the other night on an electric bike manufacturer, and they even talked about how their packaging for shipping, rather than using zip ties, they're actually using um, these ties that are that are paper related. So they're using all these different things to be able to eliminate some of the more challenging um materials, right, for our environment to be able to manage, which I thought was really kind of interesting. And I will tell you, it did pique my interest to a point to say, okay, that's a company that I would look to moving forward, you know, just because they're taking those level and and steps in in place to sort of do what's right for, for what we think needs to happen to protect sort of this planet that we're all living in. I guess one of the other questions that I have is, you know, what what have we learned, you know, from the recent evolution of ESG? Like what's working, what's not when it comes to sort of how businesses are putting sustainability issues, uh, initiatives sort of in place and sort of measuring that impact? What, what, what are we seeing? What's working? What's not? What's working from our perspective and, and a lot of the way... ESG demand by company stakeholders manifests itself in our world is through renewable energy procurement. So this is uh, corporations that are signing contracts directly with a wind project or a solar project or increasingly, uh, more recently, storage projects um, towards the ability to say, you know, we are, rather than just buying power from the grid and assuming that Utilities and, and regulators will eventually dri- you know, drive down the, the role of, of thermal uh, in that grid. I'm going to directly procure uh, in order to try to create demand for a project that gets it built that otherwise wouldn't have. And so that, you know, what's been working is, you know, high level, the scale of that appetite. So. You know, 10 years ago, there had been very little direct procurement of uh, energy by corporations. You had a retailer, a utility, and you purchased power from them. So sort of circumventing that direct relationship in order to, to buy directly from a renewable energy project was effectively brand new a decade ago and, and was driven by a change in, in uh, carbon accounting methodologies that rewarded you for direct procurement of wind and solar. And that has been an enormously successful uh, activity. So I think today there's been something like 111 gigawatts of renewable energy that has been directly purchased by, you know, sustainability buyers. These are non-energy firms who are sourcing energy directly uh, such that it is sustainable. And to put that in context, there's roughly 90 gigawatts is the entire U.S. nuclear fleet. And so you have direct procurement of 
more energy than the entire U.S. nuclear fleet uh, by corporations of renewables. That, that's globally, not U.S., but it's, it's had an enormous impact. And it's been, a, an, a, a, from my perspective, surprisingly resilient uh, source of demand for clean energy. You know, I, I think there were views, including mine, that that was potentially fragile based off of, you know, a, an economic downturn or whatever the case may be, that that was sort of a luxury good, uh, effectively, for corporations to be participating in. And, um, you know, with some volatility around commodity markets and, and other activities, it, it's pretty much been on a one-way trip up uh, where, where that demand has been growing. So I would say that's something that has been working quite well uh, and, and looks to continue on sort of a scale perspective. I think what isn't, you know, working as well about that is, you know, the industry is somewhat a victim of its own success, right? I mean, when you think about the way procurement is done of renewable energy historically, it's binary. If you buy wind or solar, it's good. If you don't, it's bad. In reality, there's a huge spectrum of, uh, you know, the carbon impact of your activities. For example, groups like Facebook who are participating in procurement of energy from energy storage projects in order to incentivize them to charge uh, when renewable energy would otherwise be curtailed. So that certain windy hours in certain places, there's basically wind farms are having to shut down because you don't have enough demand to consume it. So that is carbon-free electricity that is just being you know, shut out of the system. Energy storage can be incentivized to buy that power and turn around and sell it when coal is ramping back up. And that is a demonstrably carbon-reducing process that traditional carbon uh, metrics, accounting and otherwise, give you little to no credit for. In fact, it's not even possible to measure that impact historically. Similarly, you know, if you, you know, the, the panhandle of Oklahoma is an area that has had huge success in its growth of uh, renewable energy to the extent that in a really windy hour, adding another wind farm in the panhandle of Oklahoma has almost no impact to the, you know, from a carbon perspective because you're just adding more wind when wind is already being curtailed. Uh, so in the absence of storage or transmission enabling you to build, you know, get that power out of there, y- your impact is, is positive but, but limited from a carbon perspective, whereas building a wind farm in West Virginia has, you know, three, four hundred percent higher impact from a carbon perspective. Historically, that nuance was entirely lost in all sort of success-based metrics for, for carbon reduction. And we see a significant shift towards trying to change that. You know, carbon account, World Resource Institute, which is the NGO that drives carbon accounting rules, is opening them back up to try to figure out if there are ways to solve that issue. You've got consortiums like the one announced a few uh, months ago by uh, there's ten corporate buyers and investors um, leading it, but uh, you know, at the front of the pack was Amazon and, and Walmart and Salesforce and and um, Hannon Armstrong. And they, you know, publicly traded companies who are all uh, have significant, you know, ESG uh, activities and, and goals, and they're trying to drive uh, this shift towards, um, you know, more nuanced uh, measurement of success. All of that is being is a function of trying to drive dollars, you know, investment, purchasing, otherwise, towards the highest impact projects. So I think those are the that's an area that I think we've sort of um, outgrown some of the more basic metrics that that were the underpinnings of success of this industry, um, but that we sort of need need the next phase uh, for for the future. 
Yeah, I think that it's it's really it's a it's a very complex topic, and obviously, you know, one that you know for a lot of individuals th- scratch the surface, right? But there's there's so many complexities of it. It's one capturing, it's another storing. I mean, when you look at just and as an individual consumer, you had the opportunity at one point to put solar panels on the roof of your house and generate a certain amount of of electricity for your home, and now there's storage walls that you can install, right, to capture the the excess that you have and cover the peak times and the low times. I think it's such an evolving piece of of who we will be. And, you know, we'll get to this, but I'm really curious, you know, some of your thoughts in regards to what does it look like down the road? But I'll come back to that um, because I do want to talk about Resurity for a little bit. But, you know, you you co-founded Resurity in 2012. and, And I'm just curious, sort of what led you to be interested in this space and, and actually even just create the company in general. I mean, as I mentioned, it's a complex space and there's a lot that's going on in there. What, what was the driver for you? i say the, the interest in sort of environmental linked businesses started basically with my parents. My, my father was an environmental reporter. Uh, my mother was a wildlife documentary film producer. So, and I grew up in, in Seattle. And so in the eighties and nineties, right? Like the plight of the spotted owl and the king salmon was sort of standard dining room fare. Uh, and so that was, you know, the, the interest in having an environmental impact in, in my careers, I would say started there. In terms of you know starting a company, that that wasn't part of the plan. Uh, you know, I, I started Resurity out of uh, of, of business school, um, but if you read my business school essays, I said you know my definition of success was getting a job in the renewables groups at GE or PG&E. Uh, so enormous companies that are sort of the the opposite of of starting a company. Um, but it was an independent study in grad school that I had done that that basically focused on this concept that was has underpinned a lot of what Resurity uh, has done to date, which is how do you accurately uh, predict and manage the, the value and risk, respectively, of intermittent generation. So wind and solar have this huge economic advantage, put aside the environmental benefits, of the fact that the fuel is free. Uh, it's hard to charge for the wind or the sunshine. And so this risk that traditional energy, natural gas, coal, et cetera, has to manage, which is that there's a highly volatile cost of your fuel. Uh, renewables don't have that. So you have this, this uh, significant advantage from a financial predictability perspective. But unlike natural gas and coal, where you can turn the switch on and consume more and burn more uh, and produce more, wind and solar, you can't. And so by hour, month, and year, uh, the variability of your output is changing and absent an enormous uh, growth in storage is, is largely un- uncontrollable, unsolvable. And that has, you know, grid, physical grid impacts right, around making sure that there's enough energy at all times. But it also has very significant financial impacts. So as an example, put yourself in the shoes of a data center operator and you consume 50 megawatts every single hour. And so you buy power from a wind farm in order to serve that load. Uh, you get a heat wave where prices go through the roof and wind speeds die. You know, this happens with most heat waves, 2019 being the most recent in, in Texas. And so you're out in the market buying incredibly expensive, you know, $9,000 power. Power in Texas is typically more like $20 or $30 uh, in, you know, in order to keep your data center running and you're getting zero megawatt hours out of the wind farm that you use to, con- to protect that. So financially, 
you know, the grid was, you know, served uh, the power needs during that period physically, but financially, you know, there's a significant risk of that intermittency. And that, you know, is one example, but it flows throughout the ecosystem that the wind blowing and the sun shining, uh, and obviously the sun comes up and goes down at the same time pretty predictably, uh, but cloud cover is, is not predictable and has fairly dramatic impacts on, on aggregate power output from solar, depending on where you are in the world and the country. And so that, that financial risk was something I found, you know, A, sort of intellectually interesting and something that felt like I had an opportunity to do something out about. I wasn't an engineer. I wasn't going to invent the next uh, solar panel. But this was an area where, you know, solving that problem for, for renewables uh, felt like a, a necessary step towards uh, the maturity and the, and the growth uh, of clean energy as a whole. And so uh, dove in and the rest is sort of history. <laughs> So tell us a bit about Resurity. Um, how do you guys help inform or guide companies that are sort of building clean energy infrastructure? Like, what, what is your role? Like, talk to us a little bit about that. So we think of ourselves, we aspire to be the, the analytics engine of the clean energy economy. And by that, I mean, we want to provide the data, the software tools, and the related services that enable the buyers and sellers of clean energy and the ecosystem around them uh, to have simply put best in class information and the tools to act on it. And so I, you know, that as an example from a data services perspective, uh, we create and publish uh, location specific, hour specific carbon intensities. So there are hundreds of different submarkets, for example, specifically in, in uh, any given grid where demand and supply is clearing. And depending on, you know, as you're a consumer or a, a generator of power in that location, your behavior at that location can have wildly different impacts uh, versus, you know, the same consumption or generation at a different time and place. And so if you put yourself in the shoes of an energy storage operator, you need a lot of data about, you know, by location, by hour, how carbon intensive is the grid such that you can choose to dispatch your, you know, when schedule when you're going to charge your storage asset and when you're going to discharge your storage asset such that you can optimize for and demonstrate your carbon impact. And so as an example, we have, you know, APIs where storage developers will access, you know, every electrical location in, you know, an entire ISO to try to figure out where they should be developing energy storage projects uh, towards the goal of sort of maximum carbon impact opportunity. From a software tools perspective, uh, we have SaaS-based platforms for tracking PPA portfolios, uh, for evaluating an M&A opportunity for a new build project, um, and those are used by investors, uh, investment banks, um, et cetera, for, towards large, largely long-term sort of financial decision-making. And then we have, uh, when I say related services, a lot of times when someone says, okay, now I understand my expected value and my risk but I have more risk in this contract than I want. And so I'd like to find somebody who will you know, hedge that for me. They'll put in a floor or they'll take the risk entirely off my hands in the form of a financial swap. Uh, and so the, you know, the, we, we provide uh, hedging uh, origination and, and settlement services towards sort of a acting upon that, that risk exposure that the information side of our business uh, demonstrates. And so I think that's sort of the suite of tools and services that we use to support those buyers and sellers and, and investors in, in clean energy um, today. So what do you see the future of clean energy looking like? 
complicated. <laughs> it's complicated I, I already. It's been, so <laughs> yeah, it's already complicated. So I, I, you know, I think there's been a view of sort of you know what what is the what is the answer for clean energy? Is it we just need more transmission, or if we just built if storage got cheap enough, that would solve the problem, or if we build enough wind and solar, that'll solve the problem, or if we just start building more nuclear facilities, that'll solve the problem. Uh, I think the reality is it, it is very much an, an all of the above strategy, and that. Uh, requires a lot of uh, sort of embrace of that um, complexity. And I think we we talk a lot about this when we, we think about carbon policy. You know, the goal is, let, you know, we want to make sure the perfect isn't the enemy of the good as we think about what the future can be and how to build towards that. Uh, so how do you strike that balance of, of pursuing that, you know, that good, uh, you know, trying to avoid good at the expense of the perfect uh, or, excuse me, vice versa? Um, but also, you know, what are the ways that we can drive uh, decision making, um, whether that's policymakers or, uh, you know, commercial buyers who are buying power towards the highest impact that they can have? You should be able to think about as a corporate buyer: Should I be buying, you know, in, in, you know, investing in a solar project? Should I be advocating for a transmission line that crosses a place that I have uh, political influence? Should I be uh, advocating for storage to be located at locations I already have wind or solar projects? Each one of those has very different impacts, and I think we have to increasingly think about the world in that highest efficiency towards the end goal, decarbonization. Because I think there's uh, very clear agreement amongst the sort of ESG leaders in the renewable space that we need to get to a point where the grid as a whole is carbon free, that every hour, you know, you are consuming carbon free electricity. Uh, at the same time, the path to that, there are, are very different efficiencies of, of the path to get there. And by efficiencies, I mean how long it's going to take us. Um, are we prioritizing the highest impact opportunities uh, first? Um, and that comes down to, you know, combina com combination of the tools that, you know, we and others are aspiring to, to build and have, have already built, uh, as well as from policymakers, uh, you know, driving, you know, setting the sort of, quote unquote, uh, sticks and carrots to, to reward that highest impact behavior. 2012, Resurity started. So it's been 11 years now since you started that company. Uh, would you say that the advancements in how would you rate the advancements in this space in those past 11 years? And do you and where do you see sort of the next 10? Will we notice significance um, in, in the way in which people approach sort of this this topic uh, about, car, you know, the impacts of sustainability and carbon neutral and all of those conversations? Like, do you see it growing at a similar pace or do you see it, it being accelerated based on some of the changes that we're seeing through whether it be politics or the focus that we're seeing from individual companies and businesses? To, on the one hand, it's been amazingly uh, fast, right? Uh, in that when you think about how much renewable energy existed a decade ago, who was buying it, uh, you know, the, the idea that uh, these corporate buyers were leading, you know, the, uh, of those 110 gigawatts that corporate leaders have purchased today, I don't know what the answer was at, at, in 2010, but I, I suspect it was single digits. Um, so there's been an enormous change over that period. But I think, you know, from where we are on a, on a progress towards a viable level of global warming, it, it's also not happening fast enough. So I both anticipate and think it's a requirement that it accelerates going forward. 
Uh, and there are you know good reasons I think to believe that it that it can and should. One of them is technological. I mean, over the last ten years, wind and solar has become incredibly cost effective. Uh, in, in compared with with thermal power, uh, especially true today when you have uh, elevated prices of, of you know fuels like natural gas, um, but we've seen more recently, and we are much further you know earlier in that that you know cost curve, uh, cost of energy storage coming down simultaneously, um, and so just the cost you know ten years ago you you almost had to guarantee that you were paying a significant premium uh, towards your next best alternative. Whereas today, in many cases, it has to be, you know, it's an economically irrational decision to, to build a solar, excuse me, a, a coal or a, a, a gas plant instead of a, a wind or solar project. And that, you know, means that rather than the market being driven purely by, you know, the subset of, of folks who were willing to pay that premium, uh, you know, and, you know, where it was required by state mandate, it's now pure economics driving that, and, and that's a dramatic accelerant. I also think the you know we didn't get a whole lot of policy support out of the Trump administration, uh, to put it mildly, um, with the but the we've already seen fairly significant shifts in that um, with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, as well as the infrastructure bill. There is now a significant amount of tailwind uh, behind the the clean energy industry that that will drive that drive that acceleration. And I think also just the, you know, lastly, the, the participation, as you mentioned, by consumers uh, and that rolling up into the, the ambitions of, uh, of corporations. You know, when we think about uh, the announcement I mentioned the, in the emissions first partnership from December, where it was 10 groups that came out and announced that we have to change the way we do carbon accounting in order to incentivize highest impacts. I think it's really notable that those are 10 private companies. Those are not NGOs. Uh, focused on this area, and so you you see um, the the level of advocacy and engagement, thought leadership, and sort of uh, aggressive activity um, by uh, corporate actors. You know, tying out to the comment I made about an economic tailwind as opposed to purely policy um, or goodwill. Uh, I think those are you know that that. Those all combine for, for tailwinds that give me a, a lot of optimism. Um, but we, we have a lot of work to do because we, we do have to accelerate uh, and we are running out of time to do so. Yeah, I, I think it's really um, a really interesting topic and we could go on for a long period of time um, because I, I, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of opinion on both sides of the conversation. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we all have this responsibility to leave the planet better than the way in which it was delivered to us. And I think we there's no doubt that we can't argue that there are significant changes that are happening as a result of global warming. And and much of this, uh, the answer to that is renewable energy. And, and I think, uh, you know, I applaud the work that you're doing. I appreciate this conversation. No doubt it's a complicated conversation. Um, but I thank you very much for being here and appreciate our time. And we will have you back to sort of talk through some of the advances that we're seeing and some of the changes that we're seeing. But but thank you very much. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Look forward to round two. Maybe in 10 years, we'll do the look back. Did we make <laughs> it? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feed on Apple Podcasts to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Rowley, and that was another episode of The Big Briefing.
A quick note from our sponsor, Intel. Intel vPro continues to raise the bar with enterprise-grade performance, security, manageability, and reliability features for enterprise and managed business of all sizes. It's simple. Intel vPro is built for all businesses.